I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I am Sarah Collins. It is my huge pleasure to be here with Sisi Dangarembwa, one of those novelists who, in my view, helps us to see the value of reading and writing, not just as acts of celebration or resistance, but celebration in resistance. So welcome. And I want to start by congratulating you on the book of shortlisting. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's so gracious and kind and generous of you. Um, Siti, the first question that's sort of traditional to ask when someone attracts an accolade like the Booker Prize is, where were you when you heard the news? In your case, the answer is complicated and different. Well, I live in Harare in Zimbabwe, and on the Tuesday of the announcement, I had gone to see a niece of mine who was in rather difficult, tragic circumstances. And it was on the way back from there that the news, the announcement started filtering through. And it was just such an incredible situation to have been to see my niece. Living in Zimbabwe is complicated at the best of times at the moment. And when tragedies happen in such complication, it really becomes a little surreal. And so this is like the other side of surreal, finally hearing that I had been shortlisted for the Booker Prize because I'd been waiting since the long listing and hoping, but telling myself I wasn't hoping, of course, and I had all this under control. And yeah, so I was midway between home where I would be able to celebrate and where I had been to see my relative, uh, which was a very sad affair. It, it was a, a strange place to receive that kind of news. Life in Zimbabwe, as you write about it, is often a case of having to hold oneself in those two states at the same time, the best of times and the worst of times. And am I correct in thinking that a week before the news, you were arrested in the course of a peaceful protest against the government, or was it a week after? I'm not sure which side of the announcement that was. Yes, um, I was arrested a few days after the news of the long listing. That was on the 31st of July. Uh, we had a, a huge government protest. It, it was meant to be countrywide. 
and there was just so much reaction to it. I think the authorities were afraid that people were just going to pour out into the streets the way they had done a few years earlier when we had a coup. So a couple of days before the demonstration, they told us that it was illegal. It was a demonstration against corruption, and of course corruption is something that the most elite in the political circles do with impunity. And so it was obvious that it was targeting those kinds of people who were indulging in that kind of practice. And so, of course, they became very nervous. And so they told us that it was, it was illegal. And our constitution does provide for peaceful demonstration and petition. And so people were talking about whether it was wise to go out onto the streets when we had been told that we shouldn't go out. And I just felt that I had been one of the people who had been very vociferous in supporting the demonstration and encouraging people to use their citizens' agency and their voices, and that it really would be a betrayal of what I stand for and what I had actually spoken for me now not to go because I was afraid of what had been said. So I went and I was arrested. It was an act of great courage. Your writing is an act of great courage. And it has been recognized now by one of the most prestigious literary prizes in the world in this context where you have been arrested for protesting against the government. How has the news of the shortlisting been received? You should be celebrated by your country at the moment. Is that happening? There are many Zimbabweans who are really proud about this, and this is mainly on social media. Social media, people are thrilled, and some of the independent media in Zimbabwe have engaged with me about it. But the media in Zimbabwe is really state-controlled. That's radio and television, and there is a complete blackout. I go to report for bail every Friday. And so uh, when I went down this past Friday, the policeman said to me, oh, are you still writing? So I said to him, oh, actually, yes, uh, my latest novel is out. And he said, oh, how come we haven't heard about it? I said, well, you know, the rest of the world has heard about it. It's just Zimbabwe that hasn't heard about it. So there's a complete blackout because I am persona non grata for the state. You know, it's important for the Zimbabwean state to make it look as if nobody can do anything without them, or that the people who do manage to do things without going through state channels or without direct state support do this only because they are hobnobbing with enemies of the state and enemies of the people. So that's the narrative. So it really is impossible for them to acknowledge this great honor, in fact. And even if I do win the prize, there's a chance of one in six. I don't think it will even be news nationally because people are simply not allowed to engage with me. Even writers who, are, who I have been close to in my life have not been able to congratulate me for that reason. That is remarkable. It actually gives me pause. Before we spoke, I went back to something I remember that Gugi Watyongo had said, and I wrote it down because I wanted to read it to you. Resistance is the best way of keeping alive. It can take even the smallest form of saying no to injustice. It reminded me of something you had tweeted, so I went in search of that. You said, 
friends, here is a principle. If you want your suffering to end, you have to act. What you've just said reminds me, it humbles me actually, because it reminds me of the great authorial courage it takes to write in circumstances like that. It's not just the writing, it's the reception of the work that takes great courage. It, it leads me then to ask on the back of your tweet and in Tiongo's words, how can we act? What, what does that action look like? What does resistance look like now in this context for modern Zimbabwe? You know, I always think that's a very personal question. You know, um, you put it so beautifully in your introduction and I can't remember exactly how you said it, but was it writing in resistance? There was a beautiful sentence. Not just celebration or resistance, but celebration in resistance. Absolutely. And so I think that this is what every person has to do in their own circumstances. You find that little thing that is appropriate for your circumstances that gives you enough passion and energy and motivation to actually see it through. And that is what you must do. And it doesn't matter how small. For myself personally, when I am doing the things that I do, I am not thinking, oh, this is a wonderful and great thing. It's just this is what is before me that is an action I can carry through today. You know, if it's something I can't carry through, then why why do it? But if it's something I can do, then I just try to go for it. And um, I think that's probably the best way. Because look, you know, we're up against nations with all sorts of military and anti-riot gear and legislation and so many things at their disposal here on this continent and in other parts of the world that you can't think big, you know, and it's a question of, people converging in their thought about what they can do. And, and that is what then amplifies resistance until it becomes irresistible. Let's get down to the delicious meat of this discussion then. Your beautiful act of celebration in resistance, which is this mournable body. And before we do, can I invite you to read a little snippet from the opening of the novel? And then we'll pick it up afterwards. Thank you. Yes, I, I'm delighted to read from the opening of the novel. So this is from the very first chapter and from the very top of the chapter, the opening of the book. There is a fish in the mirror. The mirror is above the wash basin in the corner of your hostel room. The tap, cold only in the rooms, is dripping. Still in bed, you roll onto your back and stare at the ceiling. Realizing your arm has gone to sleep, you push it back and forth with your working hand until pain bursts through in a blitz of pins and needles. It is the day of the interview. You should be up. You lift your head and fall back onto the pillow. Finally, though, you are at the sink. There the fish stares back at you out of purplish eye sockets its mouth gaping, cheeks drooping, as though under the weight of monstrous scales. You cannot look at yourself. The dripping tap annoys you, so you tighten it before you turn it on again, a perverse action. Your gut heaves with a dull satisfaction. Go, go, go. It is a woman knocking at your door. Tambudzai, she says. Are you coming? 
It is one of your hostel mates, Gertrude. Tambudzai, she calls again. Breakfast? Footsteps tap away. You imagine her sighing, feeling at least a little low because you did not answer. Isabel, the woman calls now, turning her attention to another hostile dweller. Yes, Gertrude, Isabel answers. A crash tells you you have not paid sufficient attention. Your elbow nudged the mirror as you brushed your teeth. Or did it? You are not sure. You did not feel it. More precisely, you cannot afford definite conclusions, for certainty convicts you. You strive to obey the hostel's rules, yet they just laugh at you. Mrs. May, the hostel matron, has reminded you frequently how you have broken the rule of age. Now the mirror has again slipped off the crooked nail in the wall and fallen into the basin below, resulting in a crack. The next fall will shake all the pieces from the frame. You lift it out gently to keep the broken fragments in place, thinking up an excuse to tell the matron. Now then, what were you doing with it? Mrs. May will demand. You know you're not meant to meddle with the appointments. The matron is fighting for you, she says. She tells you often how the board of trustees is complaining. Not about you as such, but about your age, she says. The city council will revoke the hostel's license if they find out women of such antiquity reside there. Women who are well beyond the years allowed in the Twist Hostel's statutes. You hate that board of bitches. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was the opening of this mournable body. Reacquainting us with a protagonist who has featured in the fir your first two novels, Tambudzai. She's a sort of, I guess, a canary going down the mile. She, she represents the psyche and the fortunes of the nation in, in nervous conditions where we're first introduced to her. She is a schoolgirl in the newly independent or the about to become independent nation. In this mournable body, what condition do we find her in? Tambudzai is really broken psychologically and spiritually when we meet her in this mournable body. Yes, she was a schoolgirl when we first met her in nervous conditions and it looked as though life was possible. At that time in Zimbabwe, which was Rhodesia in the 1960s, education was a guarantee for a better life if you were black. And so she struggled to get an education and she did manage to get the education when her, the wealthy branch of her family took her in and helped her to go to school. And then she went to a school that used to be called multiracial before independence in Zimbabwe. And in those kinds of schools, you would have a couple of hundred white pupils and there were limits set by law as to the number of black students who were allowed to attend those schools. And it was some, somewhere between three and 5% who were allowed to attend those schools. So she was one of that three to 5%. And at the time it was really 
an elite opportunity. And she was sure that her life was made. And she was at great pains in that environment not to antagonize the white community that she had been set amongst. Then independence came and everything looked even brighter. You know, now the, the country was independent, opportunities were opening up. So Tambuzai was sure she was going to have the most wonderful life. And then independence began to turn sour. And she ended up working in an advertising agency, which was run by white people because the economy was still in the hands of white people at the time. And it turned out that her command of English was better than theirs, so they plagiarized her copy. And it came to the point where she simply couldn't stand it. You know, it was a kind of intellectual snobbery, I suppose. But uh, she also was not earning enough money because, again, with the discrepancy in wages, first of all, on the basis of gender, and then again, on the basis of race, it was doubly insulting and painful for people to be plagiarizing her copy and then not rewarding her for it. So she actually resigned in a fit of pique. And she finds herself jobless in middle age or very nearly in middle age in an economy that's shrinking. And that is how we find her at the beginning of nervous conditions with no prospects whatsoever. Now, she cannot even go home because going home means going back to the village, which is still destitute. And as the one who was educated, she was meant to have been the one who could then provide. And she is not able to do it. So there is shame and also no prospects in going back to the village. So she really is in a very difficult situation when we first meet her. And she's about to be kicked out of this hostel for aging out. So she couldn't be more desperate. This is a novel that is beautifully weighted with symbols. There is, for people who have read it, a very persistent bag of mealy meal that made me laugh every time it turned up. But, but almost everything is symbolic. And so I want to ask you, what does it say that we begin with her looking in the mirror at this very surreal and distorted image of herself? In the light yes, of what very definitely, Sarah. I'm so glad you, you picked that up. She's looking at herself and she obviously hates herself. She is just completely consumed with self-loathing. You know, and this goes back to how being black is, if you have not really made that psychological and internal journey, one can still take on all the neg negativity around blackness from society and internalize it. So in her bid to become educated and shake off everything that she sees as negative, and uh, simply disastrous from her life in the village. She has internalized all that. And um, this is what she sees when she looks into the mirror. She sees a hideous monster uh, that she doesn't want to have anything to do with. And the, the whole book really is kind of trying to bring her perception of herself and her actual self together in a healthier manner. That's at least what I set out to do. You, your writing is so psychologically astute on dissecting the nervous condition of being not only black and not only a woman, but also a quote unquote post-colonial. From that beginning, I think what then really throbs through the novel, at least for me, is a sense of building anger 
and I've heard Tam Budzai described as an anti-heroine. I am enamored of anti-heroines myself. I think her anger is the anger of protagonists like Jane Eyre, the anger of someone who refuses to be pinned into the box that the world wants to pin them in. Women novelists get into a lot of trouble for writing about angry women. Claire Massoud said, if anger is unseemly in a man, it's totally impossible for a woman to be angry. So I want to ask you, how would you answer the charge that this anger, Tambudzai's anger, in a novel is unseemly or disconcerting, especially in the context of a novel written by a quote-unquote post-colonial black female writer, who in that sense mirrors her character? Yeah, Sarah, I grappled with that because obviously there is a lot of anger and I am aware of the character's anger, even if the character is not aware of it for a very long time. And one of the big issues for me was how to deal with it, because you, you, I do have the character Tambuzai who has tried to conform to all the norms of society, believing that if she did so, this would help her to get ahead and leave a, live a satisfying life. But it was very difficult for me to find a way to bring this anger out in the character uh, so that she could move forward. Because if one is weighted down with anger and one does not engage with that anger in some way, you cannot move forward. And that is actually where, where the, the second person of the narrative was, was helpful, because it opened up this gap between the narrator and, and me as the writer, and I could insert things into that gap. And it, it was tricky. And that's one of the reasons why it took so long to write, because, you know, those are the kinds of things that I was grappling with. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the second writing and the second person point of view, because there's been an evolution. If you set the three novels in the trilogy side by side, you've done actually, I wanted to quote you back to yourself, if I can find it. You said in an interview that you remember telling your publisher how at first you were perplexed that each of Morris, Toni Morrison's novels were in a different voice. As a reader who enjoyed one of her works, I craved a continuation in the next one. But then as I continued to read, you found the different voices and you found that that was one of the marks of genius. One of your marks of genius here is that you have evolved the narrative style. It's a truly wonderful, almost miraculous thing to do. And I wanted to ask you about switching to the second person perspective in this novel, which isn't an easy trick to pull off. For me, my reading of it is that in, in some way it implicates the reader as well. It challenges them to experience very uncomfortable things. Was that something you had in mind, a kind of deliberate enterprise, when you set out to do it that way? Yes, definitely, Sarah. Um, I was wondering how I could draw the reader into the story, which is a very difficult story. And it narrates um, several episodes of anguish and events that are really quite violent and unpleasant. And I wondered how I could draw the reader in because I felt that if I used the first person, the reader would simply refuse to engage um, in the first person if they were identifying. And then on the other hand, if the reader was reading in a more voyeuristic manner to see what was happening to this person, it was difficult for me then to really remain authentic in the first person. So I had to find 
a way of doing it. And um, I realized that it would not be possible to use the third person because then the gap between the other two would be too great and the unity uh, would not work. And so I literally just experimented with the second person. I had drafts in the first person and it just wasn't working. And so I just took a chunk that I liked and I began writing it in the second person and I found that it worked. And what I really liked about it when I was thinking is that sometimes if something has happened to a person and the person is talking to somebody that they feel they can unburden themselves to, they often use the second person to cover yeah. up. And so it was that kind of intimacy that I felt that the second person would bring. And often when a person speaks in that way, one feels one has to listen. It's almost like a gift, almost like a duty. And uh, I liked the idea of binding the reader in, in that manner. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's also like being taken by the shoulder and shaken awake which brings me to something else you've said in another interview about Tambudzai, that she experiences at various points moments of paralysis. And if we take her as a symbol for the nation, this novel is sort of taking a nation and shaking it awake. Would you agree with that? And if so, what are you saying to the nation in this novel? Very definitely, Sarah. The, the idea of shaking awake it was something on my mind. My feeling was that our society in Zimbabwe does not really reflect very much. You know, it's very much about getting the next meal, just making sure that things are working. And uh, this goes back into our culture pre-colonial days because it was never the utopia that people like to think it is sometimes. And especially the state likes to us to believe that everything was so wonderful in pre-colonial days. I mean, there were our fair share of troubles and the climate here has never been that abundant and so you know just the general things of food and surviving were very practical issues that people had to engage with and there wasn't that much time to reflect and I felt that we needed to find a way to reflect but to reflect in a way that wasn't about pointing fingers and reflecting externally but to see how we are part of the whole process. And then if we understand how the ways we think and behave and the culture that we have built up is complicit in creating the conditions that we are living in now, I felt that um, 
we would perhaps be able to think our way out of this situation. And it, it had to be done gently. It had to be done in a non-accusatory manner. And so these were the things on my mind when I wrote this mournable body. And being forced, I think, to work for one's own survival means that there isn't time for reflection. It brings me to the character who in many ways is, is Tambudzai's counterpoint in this trilogy, her cousin Nayasha. Nayasha uh, is, in this novel, she started a kind of female artistic collective. She thinks that the answer is telling your stories. She says young women discover their own greatness, not in the cinema or in a boyfriend, but buried in themselves um, by means of telling their own stories. But she also has had throughout her life the luxury of support and choices that Tambudzai has not. She started with the wealthy supportive family and in this novel she has a supportive German husband, although they live in a kind of genteel poverty, but she isn't experiencing the kind of desperation that Tambudzai is. So she has that luxury of sitting back and reflecting and thinking about art. And what does that say about the role of art or artists and female ones in particular in making this wake-up call and, and how they should be supported in doing that? I, I do agree with you that Nyasha had choices and I really do think that having choice is the basis of reflection because it is in weighing up which alternative you want to go for and why that, that you engage with yourself and your desires and needs and you project different trajectories of what might happen. And so in, in a situation where one is devoid of choice, one is really not going to get into that reflective mode, I think. And so one, I believe that one cannot blame a character like Tambutai for not possessing the capacity to reflect. And this is why it is so important to have characters like Nyasha who can bring in that dimension. I think it's for that reason, it is extremely important to support the voices of women who are writing from many kinds of demographic challenges, you know, which includes age. At one point, the demographic challenge of age was that if you were young, you did not have opportunities. That seems to be shifting a little bit, especially in the arts field. But it, it generally is very important to hear these voices. And it is because these are the people who may not have been reflecting so much upon themselves, but they have been observing society and how it functions because they have to. I mean, it's, it, it is common knowledge that people who are oppressed know more about the oppressor than the oppressor knows about the people they are oppressing. The oppressor may know more in terms of systems and data and statistics, but in terms of living and being and who the people actually are, that is the, the realm of those who are oppressed because they have to observe them minutely. They have to know their absolute every habit in order to survive. And you yourself have written about this so beautifully in your novel. And so that is why we need these voices, actually, because they are the ones who can tell us about ourselves. And, and that is one reason why I chose Sambutai as the character, uh, the protagonist that I was going to write about, because I wanted to have to write about people who had to observe all those things. And it's really very interesting that 
when it then comes time to observe oneself, that can be problematic because yes. you simply have not developed the capacity to do so. It requires immense honesty as well. And the reason I'm nodding so enthusiastically is because I keep thinking that the oppressed can neither be the oppressed, and I use that in quotation marks, that word, can neither be written about or write about themselves merely as ciphers of either victimhood or, or triumph. The, the inclination is to do that because those are the two narratives that we're used to and that also make the story straightforward. What you've done here is engage with the kind of complicity in Tambudzai's case that people would call her a quote-unquote sellout, you know, in particular the sort of denouement she's heading towards, which is a very difficult thing to do, but a necessary thing, wouldn't you agree? It gives us the human story rather than the story that people are expecting. Exactly, I agree with you 100%, because, you know, we have to be complicit with power to some extent in order to survive, but then the question becomes, to what extent do you become complicit? And for Tambudzai, she had to go very far in that um, before she realized that she was going too far and would not be able to find her way back to herself ever. You know, and I think it's that thing that often when a person has a goal, one will say, okay, I'll just do this for now because I need to get to my goal. And when I get to my goal, I will stop and I will do something else. And of course, that's not true because you are evolving into that person who has that goal all the time that you are doing those things. And so it's important to realize that being complicit creeps up on you. I mean, look at Zimbabweans. We were complicit with guerrillas during the war because it was the war effort. And also there was terrible retribution if you were not complicit with the guerrillas during the war. And so we evolved into that habit. We said, okay, we want independence. So we're going to go along with some of the things that were done that were really not the best things for human beings to be doing to each other. And so we got into that habit. And so then we continued past independence. We didn't then change and start saying, okay, we're going to start holding people accountable. Uh, we're going to conceptualize authority in a different way. No, we carried on. And so this is where we find ourselves now at the point where we have to do something about it or things are really going to fall apart. And so the parallel with Tambudzai as a character and the parallel with Nation are not really something that I constructed, but I think it is something that unfolds in a nation. You cannot be who you are outside of the context that you are living in. And so, of course, your context is going to determine you. I think the question for a writer is how far do I want to, to follow that kind of um, interconnection between the individual and society? And for me, that actually has been my subject matter in these three novels. I spoke with uh, another great novelist recently. I've had the good fortune to speak with two great novelists in succession over the last couple of days. And she said, each novel you write changes you. So my question to you is, has how, because I'm going to assume the change, how has writing and now completing the trilogy changed you? Definitely completing the trilogy has changed me. When I wrote Nervous Conditions, I realized that the story was not finished and I didn't know how I was going to go on with the story. 
especially because that was just uh, after independence and some of the issues that I bring up to do with race did not seem to me to be timely when at that time when I was writing in the 1980s. But I still knew that these were issues that had to be dealt with. And so in being able to deal with those issues, I, I think I have made my own journey through them. And it's been wonderful to complete the story because people used to say to me, uh, Nyasha's going to die. She's definitely going to die. There's no way that she can survive. And then other people said to me, well, Tampozai is going to go the same way as Nyasha as well. There's no way that, that she can manage in that environment. And so it became my objective to keep these two characters alive and give them some modicum of success as human beings, you know. And it took 30 years for me to get there, but I'm happy. And I just felt that I want to put a narrative out there that says no matter how bad it is, it is possible to get over the hill. So um, the weight of carrying that has for me uh, now fallen away. It's fallen away from me. And the fact that people have been so kindly um, accepting and of the work is something else. You know, it's very positive. Finishing the book and being changed by it is one thing. But the reception of people also shapes one. Because if I didn't want people to read it and it wasn't important to me, I would finish writing it and put it under my mattress or something. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't take it out to be published. And so for me, the reaction is part of the writing as well. And um, uh, I, I really just feel that I have been able to do what I set out to do, and that's really marvelous. And you, you must feel very light as a result of having finished it. You've been living with Tambudzai in some way or the other for 30 years. I know you've gone on to do other things, in particular in the filmmaking world, but is there a sense of lightness that you've released that burden and you're moving on to other creative things now? Absolutely, definitely. And I, I've really been able to engage with myself over some of the things that I needed to work out for myself to do with the intersectionalities that I live in, this particular space that I occupy, and the way those intersectionalities are playing out in society in Zimbabwe. And so that's really been very positive for me. You know, there was a Zimbabwean writer called Dambuzo Marechera. Yes. And he wrote a book called The House of Hunger, which was very successful, amongst others. And at a prize giving at Oxford, he was at Oxford, he began throwing plates. And, you know, I could always identify with that anger. My prayer to the universe was, please, let me not get to the point of throwing plates. And so it's just wonderful that I have been able to engage with that anger in diverse ways through the different characters here without throwing plates. And also in a way that enables people to perhaps begin to understand that anger. You know, this trope of the angry black woman. You know, it's good that we now have angry black women mastering their anger sufficiently to write in a way that makes people understand why this particular human being and this group of human beings suffers under the weight of so much anger. And uh, I, I actually feel 
that that is, it's a blessing and a privilege I to be in a position to do that. Yeah. I think of Audre Lorde on the uses of anger. And I also think of who has been allowed to be angry and express their anger throughout history. And I think expressing our own anger is not just an assertion of our right to have it, but also it is a way of speaking back against that power because anger and power often coincide. And it is those who are deemed to be powerless who are also deemed to be unable to express anger. So I think a bit of throwing of plates, either literal or metaphorical, isn't always entirely misplaced. We have lots of audience questions. I don't know how many of them we're going to get to, but I want to slip one in. First of all, someone says, thank you for being a beacon of truth and positive change. I thought you would like to hear that. Thank um, you. This is an interesting one from Norel Assel or Aselli. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name. It's, um, is colonial education obsolete? Good question. Will it ever be obsolete? And are Africans still affected by the negative impact of colonial education? Yes, that really is a wonderful question. It's one that I've been engaging with very recently. I would say that colonial education is not obsolete. And I think we have different forms of it today. There is obviously the colonial education that existed before independence and very much so in my part of the world, Southern Africa, where as Verfort uh, um, in South Africa said, it was designed to produce drawers of water and hewers of wood. That was the aim of uh, colonial education to produce units of humanity that were of service to the colonial project. And uh, we still have that kind of education, even in Zimbabwe, but it, it has also evolved into a post-colonial kind of colonial education in that we have an education that is very much based on uh, the same road system where you just train the mind to take information in and to regurgitate it in the way that it has been given to them because this is of use to, to the so-called educator. And now we find that people are being educated simply to put ticks in ballot boxes. And so that specific purpose has changed, but the actual nature and objective, which is to produce people who will simply do as they are told, uh, has not changed. So I would say very definitely we still have colonial modes of education and um, I really don't know how that is going to change. There might be a few countries, especially in West Africa, where, where you have specific institutions, but where I live in Zimbabwe, it's not even a discussion. In fact, we have seen education regress as the state becomes more and more repressive. I actually think having had to educate myself out of the colonial context, because I grew up in a, in a British colony as well, that the only hope is to make literature accessible because it was novels that taught me about myself, separate and outside of the colonial context. And I was interested in you saying that it's very hard to come by books in Zimbabwe. Does that go hand in hand with a kind of censorship of artistic production as well? Or is it just a case of difficulties in supply? Uh, it's a lot of things, Sarah. First of all, from colonial times, the African population was not deemed to have culture. 
And so nobody thought about setting up uh, systems of cultural production for the production of artistic products. So that just didn't happen. Then in the African imagination, there was no time for it because you had to learn what the colonizer wanted you to learn in order to function in their world. So we, we never developed an imaginary which thought that artistic products had any value in society. And in fact, in, in Shona, uh, the language that I speak as well as English, when we talk about a theater uh, play, for example, it is a play, but the, the word is mutambo, which is similar to play, but there is no understanding of the drama behind it, because in, in other languages, you then have other words uh, that are used that depict the drama and the way, the relationship to life. But we don't have that. It's just the word that means play. And so this was, denotes recreation. That is what you did in recreation time. But it was not serious labor that produced anything that was meaningful to society beyond uh, relaxing you. So, so that is how we think of it. And this, I think, is something that the structures in the world today have wanted to keep in place. Because if you do have a society that suddenly becomes very vibrant in producing from its imagination, then whole new worlds are going to be created and you're not going to be able to stop it. So it is really very important uh, to make sure that we do not enter into imagination. And we see that also in the films that were made in my part of the world. There were these development films where money was only made available to tell us that we had problems. We have a problem of HIV. We have a problem of orphans. We have a problem of lacking women's rights. And these problems became the subject. And we became just... Uh, limbs of, of the problem, if you like, and all the negativity was fed back to us. And this is by design. You know, I say to myself, you cannot have a culture and a society that ruled a quarter of the globe for over a century and not have them know what is going on when they set up these systems. They're done with intention. And we see it again in Zimbabwe today. And now it's not the colonial administration, but it's the state administration doing exactly the same thing, only with different contents, as I said before, um, with education. So now the only narrative that is sanctioned is narrative that extols the liberation struggle, that extols the work of, of the guerrillas in the war, and that extols the Rhodesian state and its the Rhodesian, you know, this it's so similar to the way they behave that I don't have a great distinction in my mind anymore, but extols that kind of repression because it is fighting against, you know, the evils. With the Rhodesians, it was communism and black terror, but for our state, it is Western imperialism and neo-colonialism. So, so it's very similar. It is so important to constrain the imagination and make sure it does not abound because the nature of imagination is to create worlds. And so once we begin to really deploy our imagination, we are going to create our worlds. There is such power in that. 
I want to talk about morality and imagination. I was reading a wonderful essay in The New Yorker, which Arthur Miller wrote about how he came to create The Crucible. It reminded me of your experiences in creating this trilogy and having it published. He said something which I want to quote to you. In any play, however trivial, there has to be a still point of moral reference against which to gauge the action. I think of that still point as a notion of artistic truth, that in every work of art, there is some truth that is the point of the compass that that work of art is aiming for, and that there's a kernel of morality in it if the art is quote unquote good. And so I want to ask you if there's been a kind of still point, if there's a truth that you've been honing in on that you feel like you might have arrived at um, with, with the three novels. Yes, Sarah, I, I never studied literature. I didn't study literary theory. I just started writing because I loved storytelling. And so really the, the still point that I can perhaps say does exist is basically my idea of what a decent person should be. You know, and, and that, that comes from my environment, the way I was brought up. You mentioned also reading books and educating yourself out of that colonial mentality because of books. I had exactly the same experience. I started reading young people like Ngugiwa Thiongo, who you quoted today, and I, I had to build it up for myself. It, it was not a morality that was being spoken about at that time. My parents' generation was very much that generation of African people who had to toe the line in order to manage it all. So, um, they were also people who, who, who would not themselves really want to be confrontational with the status quo. And so I had to find for myself that route that said, yes, confrontation with that which is oppressive in your mind is actually a good step. And to realize that does not take me away from that morality that right and wrong that I was brought up with. It is simply an expansion of it to include myself and my own aspirations and the aspirations of people like me. And so it's something I've had to construct for myself, to be very honest, because also society in Zimbabwe is still extremely conservative. I, I wasn't out of the country for very long. There is not a vibrant philosophical or critical cultural tradition here. And so it has been really an individual process. But what is very positive for me is that it means that I can stand by that process. And I think that it's very important for people who are writing uh, in environments like mine who don't have that kind of environment that encourages them a lot to know that at the end of the day, you have to find it in yourself. Yes. No matter what is going outside, you do have to do that looking in and to find that place in yourself. There is the still point. I want to end by quoting the epigraph, which I think uh, is the feeling I was left with on closing the final page of the final novel, which is a quote from A Raisin in the Sun, there is always something left to love. And I think ultimately you've given us a story of hope rather than despair. And it's, it's a magnificent achievement. I did I did promise that I would ask you if you had other Zimbabwean writers to boost during this conversation. 
I think that's important. So any closing words from you, as well as any shout outs you want to give to Zimbabwean writers we should be discovering next? Yes, absolutely. Um, Novo Yochuma, who wrote House of Stone, is, uh, I am just raving about her. House of Stone is the book, and it's about the aftermath of the massacres in Matabeleland. It was actually a genocide perpetrated by Zanu PF upon the people of Matabeleland in the south, who are mainly of a different ethnicity. And there are two accounts of it, fictional accounts that I have read, and they are both extremely strong. But Novio Chuma's book came out fairly recently, and it is just amazing. Um, it, it really tells us something about the mind of, of the kinds of people who, who commit those kinds of atrocities, and also about the struggle for healing in those people who lived through them. So it's an amazing book. And uh, the other book that I really like is Harare North by um, Brian Chikwawa. It's a little bit older, and Harare North is actually London, because when Zimbabweans started migrating en masse out of the country, people would then end up in London. That was where many of the people went in the beginning, and people would just say, oh, there's so many Zimbabweans in London now, it's like Harare North. And it's the story of a young man who was involved in the post-independence atrocities, just one of these hangers-on to Zanupiev in their gangs of people who go out and do the acts that they want to have done and cannot cope with it in the end, and so also escapes to London, and how he has to try to find a new identity for himself and just manage and ultimately is not able to. But, but again, it's a brilliant portrait of, of another post-colonial nightmare, actually. People have said that this mournable body is a post-colonial nightmare, and definitely Harare North is another post-colonial nightmare. Well, thank you so much for giving us this miraculous trilogy. Um, it's such a wonderful achievement. It's um, received this well-deserved recognition. All I can do is send you, from everyone watching, I'm sure, our love and best wishes for the Booker ceremony and the announcement. Um, and it's been a huge pleasure to speak with you. I could have listened. I could have just listened all afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, everybody who's here. It's such a delight for me to be able to share this book. Now, finally, the weight has fallen from me and it's done and I'm going on to other things. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.